These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today we're going to talk about Lamasu, Lamashtu, Samanu, Mushushu, and Pazuzu. The great thing about non-English words is that if you say them right, they all sound like baby talk, or as the Greeks used to say, it all sounds like bar, 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 bar. But to introduce us in a different way, today we're going to talk about gods and demons. Now that sounds a lot more impressive, and all of our headline names are words that an ancient Babylonian or Assyrian would have taken very seriously. We've talked a lot about the major gods, read a lot of their stories, and seen them venerated throughout Mesopotamian history, and we've also had cause to mention pretty often the personal gods and the patron gods that people most directly interacted with on a day-to-day -day level. But there's a whole category of beings that are sort of in the middle between the grand gods and the personal gods. You could call them like the B and C list deities, which play a noticeable role throughout ancient culture, but which I haven't really been able to fit in anywhere else. These middle gods don't have a clear place in the organization of ancient religion. Sometimes we hear it suggested that the heavens are split between the Anunnaki, that's the children of An, which comprise the major gods, and beneath them are the Igigi, who make up all the other gods. But neither category has a consistent listing. Both change frequently in number and in makeup from source to source, and we do get the impression as well that this Anunnaki-Igigi distinction existed principally in certain strands of Mesopotamian religion and may have been either unknown or poorly understood in other traditions. Making it harder is the fact that hundreds if not thousands of gods were imported or developed over the centuries, many in conflicting or foreign contexts, meaning that we end up with the major gods holding major god classification, that's the Anunnaki, and then the patron gods of individuals and groups retain a classification as patron deities. Those, of course, these were overlapping categories, as any sort of god could be a patron god, and in the case of beings like Asher and Marduk, the simple act of being a patron deity over a powerful nation is what propelled them into the major god category. But for hundreds and hundreds of spiritual beings, we just don't know if there was any systematic understanding of their position, place, and category. And in all fairness, there might not ever have been. It could well be that each being was considered its own sort of thing to a great extent. They all seem to have had relations with other beings, family ties, and other sorts of interactions, and it is possible that attempts at systematizing were made over the years which have been lost to us, and which in a lot of cases would have been invalid a few centuries later in any case. Some of these would have been local deities, gods of rivers and hills and groves of trees and such. We all know almost none of these toponymical gods because people had very little reason to write about most of them. 
Any interaction seems to have been done outside the written record, in tiny transitory rituals of daily life transmitted orally by the nearby community. But we know that geographical gods was in fact a category of ancient Mesopotamia, largely on the strength of the most famous of these gods, the god Asher. For all that we will be seeing Asher, the god, grow into a major theological force, he began as nothing but the god of a mountain, or really a large hill, called Asher, atop which the city of Asher was founded. Many more of these spiritual beings were more akin to fairies or goblins, beings who lived on the fringes of civilization, or indeed on the fringes of reality, and typically did their own thing, with little concern or contact with humans. Almost all of these, as well, have been lost, since there was little reason to write about them under normal circumstances. Some of the greatest monsters, like the Anzu bird, the Agag, and Humbaba, were impressive enough to get immortalized as the antagonist of an heroic adventure, and a handful more just get named in passing, but the vast majority likely went unrecognized and unnamed even in ancient times, referenced in very general terms when the specifics were unclear or unimportant. The middle gods that we hear about are largely the ones involved in magic. Now, something I honestly hadn't realized until fairly recently is that the Mesopotamian approach to magic was not, as I had assumed, basically the standard in the ancient world. Egyptians, it seems, were far less interested in practical magic, though they did have some, and were instead heavily focused on funereal magic practices, which I suppose makes sense. The Egyptians, they sure love their tombs. But what I hadn't realized is that our modern sense of magic as separate from prayer and divination actually has its origins among the ancient Greeks and Romans. I'd rather thought that everyone in the ancient world sort of had the all-encompassing view of magic that the Mesopotamians seemed to have inherited from the Sumerians and Akkadians, but that's why it's good to read in a variety of historical eras and areas. Anyway, the point is that we, nowadays, think of magic as something different from prayer. Prayer, after all, is invoking a higher spiritual power in order to build a relationship with that power through offerings or praise, or to request something from that power, maybe deliverance from hardship or forgiveness of sin or what have you. Magic, meanwhile, it's a very different matter, where the practitioner involves a spiritual higher power, frequently offering something to that power and often building a long-term relationship with the protective power in order to request something from that power. Perhaps deliverance, or from hardship, or forgiveness for some offense. Which maybe isn't all that different? As perhaps might surprise you, magic and prayer were in many ways inseparable in the Mesopotamian mindset, as was divination. 
There did exist many subcategories of magician or priest or diviner, but none of these categories cleanly match on to our modern three-part division. And nothing in our three-part division cleanly matches on Mesopotamian ideas. That is to say, if you were some subcategory of magician, you were probably also a priest, diviner, and, to a certain extent, medical worker. But then throw into all of it the fact that we usually separate out medicine from all this, but medicine in this time is just a type of magic. And then we end up with a subject that's hard to talk about in a way that modern people can understand, just because we no longer have the same set of concepts in our head that the ancient people did. Anyway, keeping all that in mind, we get back to our B-list gods and demons. The difference between the two, that is, gods and demons, is often very unclear, and it's not always present in the original language. Indeed, far more possible classifications have been proposed by scholars, which I'm going to largely ignore. Of these beings, the ones we know the most about are the ones most heavily involved in magical practice, either because they cause some sort of affliction, or because they ward off some kind of affliction. And this is such a strong connection that there's a debate in many cases whether a certain disease-related word is best translated as the name of an illness, the name of a symptom, or the name of a demon. Samanu is a popular example here. Depending on the modern scholar that you read, Samanu could be a very standard example of a demon. Or it could just be the name of a disease, what we nowadays call mysotoma. For an example of the more medical side, we have an ancient diagnosis text which reads... If a man has the Samanu disease, whether red, black, yellow, or white, and whether it's the discharge or thorn wound variety, well, then you combine a couple items together into a plaster and apply to the infected area. In some cases, there might be blood and pus seepage, which call for additional treatment. Other diagnostic texts let us know that the affected area can be head, hands, and most commonly the feet and it can be accompanied with an odd sort of numbness. All this tracks fairly well with the modern disease of mysotoma. There is apparently a sort of fungus common to the Near East and areas around there which lives on the ground and in wood. When you step on a thorn or when you carry wood, you might get a small cut, which will sometimes allow the fungus to enter, causing a fungal growth on your body and various unpleasant symptoms. Nowadays, this does sort of sound like the ancient description of the Samanu disease, except for two things. First, and I'm not a doctor, I'm just going by what the medical literature tells me, Mycetoma is apparently characterized nowadays by redness, which is a color characteristic of the underlying fungus. Samanu, meanwhile, could be red, black, yellow, or white. Now, all four of these are common fungal colors. It could be that the underlying fungus has evolved over time, with the red variety proving to be more resilient than the others 
We do know that microorganisms evolve far more rapidly than larger creatures, so a 3,000-year time period for basically whole strains to go nearly extinct, it's plausible enough. Alternately, it could be a completely unknown disease with similar symptoms. This might not be mycetoma at all. We usually think about new diseases arising through evolution, like HIV and COVID, but the same process also gradually mutates and extincts organisms as well. So we should always be open to the possibility that an ancient disease that we read about could be different from anything we know today. Or it could be a mutated form of what we know today, or it could be exactly the same as what we have today, just poorly described. Both today and in the past, we've all believed that diseases such as this were caused by unseeable agents. Nowadays, we believe that we can discern the specific unseeable agent through biopsy and chemical analysis, which are, of course, arcane rituals poorly understood by the average person. The body is analyzed with instruments that neither doctor nor patient knows how to construct, and based on how the chemical analyzer reacts, the doctor is trained to interpret the results and name the illness. In ancient times, this same sort of thing was performed. The body was analyzed according to various instructions, sometimes directly and sometimes through arcane divination techniques not fully understood by either patient or doctor. And the doctor was trained in reading the signs upon the body and upon the divination medium to discern which unseen agent caused the disease. The main difference here is that we will decide that the unseen agent is a bunch of tiny living beings, or in the case of viruses, tiny robots assembled at random from the stuff of creation. The ancients believed that the unseen agents were spirit beings. When you heal from an illness, when you repair your car or your computer, you have an abstract theory of what's going on in your head and you have a ritual procedure that you follow based on that theory. Only very rarely do you have a full knowledge of the mechanism of action between the theory and the actual procedure. If you have mycetoma, nowadays, the doctor gives you an injection of antifungal medicine. You know the theory that the magic juice in the needle will kill the tiny living things that are bad, but not kill the tiny living things that are good. And you know the ritual. Doctor applies magic juice to my bloodstream. But unless you're one of the exceedingly few people in the world who study that sort of thing really in depth, you have no idea what compound in that magic juice targets fungi, but not human tissue. And you don't know how it causes the fungus to die. But just as modern doctors will, if they're in a good mood, be happy to explain their knowledge of the life cycles of invisible fungus creatures, ancient doctors were happy, in the right circumstances, to discuss the life cycles of the invisible Samanu beings. A Samanu demon has a lion's mouth, 
teeth of a dragon's snake, uh, claws of an eagle, and tail of a crab. It has reddish claws, likely because of the red characteristic of the most common form of the disease, and is the red dog of Enlil, the neckbreaker of Enki. Now that last is curious. Few things are typically said to negatively affect even the major gods. But Samanu apparently opens the bloody mouth of even the gods, and has bound the gods in the evening sky. He comes originally from the mountains, though whether this is meant as a slur calling him barbaric, or as an actual statement of origins, like, we think Samanu came from over here, we're not really sure. And he affects not only gods and people, but also plants, animals, and rivers as well making the identification with mycetoma rather more difficult. Now, these descriptions, they sound real poetic, but they're all diagnostic. They are all ways to recognize Samanu, from the monstrous description to the physical symptoms in the body and in nature. Different manifestations of Samanu require different cures, both in terms of poultices and in terms of ritual actions. Being a wind, and it seems that the storm god was most frequently invoked in banishing Samanu, but being a particularly tenacious sort of disease, it seems to have developed a reputation for being difficult to exercise, even overwhelming the gods themselves at times. And the fact that the gods themselves could lose to a demon is theologically remarkable, and reminds us again not to take power rankings or divine classifications too rigidly, as all heavenly phenomena were ultimately judged by their effects visible through divination and earthly action, as the heavens were not directly visible to the ancients any more than they are to us today. We can see this sort of worldly influence on the heavens with another demon called Mushushu, or Snake Dragon. This is one of the more famous ancient mythic figures in modern times because a representation of it appears on the Great Gates of Babylon, which have been reconstructed in a German museum. It's that big blue gate that you've probably seen pictures of if you've been interested in Mesopotamia for any length of time. Now, the story of Mushushu really starts with a god I don't think we've even mentioned on this show up till now, Tishpak. In many ways, Tishpak is representative of the diversity that often hides behind references to the Mesopotamian mythic or religious system. Because Tishpak was very important, but he was a very local deity in a city that doesn't get a whole lot of attention in modern scholarship. Up on the Diala River, that's a tributary of the Tigris, is the city of Ishnuna. And Ishnuna has always been a modestly important town, sort of at the edge of Sumerian, Akkadian, and Elamite cultural spheres. The patron god of the town, depending on who you ask, was either the Akkadian-slash-Sumerian god Ninazu or Tishpak, whose origins are unclear but was probably either from the Elamites or from one of the mountain barbarian cultures. 
Now, at some point in the early dynastic or Akkadian periods, Tishpak started to become more popular within Eshnunna as the patron god. And as a part of that, either as a cause or an effect, there began to be more stories of him defeating mythic monsters. And one of the most popular of these stories was him conquering and subjugating the Mushushu. During Eshnunna's increase in power during the Isanlarsa period and into the time of Hammurabi, we even see writings from Mari on the opposite side of Mesopotamia, including Tishpak in their mythic accounts of regional geopolitics, where they discuss the political situation by way of various cities' patron gods, where we see him classed in the upper middle tier. This is sort of like modern political commentators talking about China as a bear, as a dragon and Russia as a bear, but instead they're using the pagan deities for each of these cities. During Hammurabi's remarkable era of expansion, though, we see Marduk come to take over the Mushushu, possibly as a way of demonstrating Marduk's superiority over Tishpak with Babylon's conquest of Eshnunna. Marduk then holds on to the Mushushu until the Neo-Assyrians conquer Babylon, which we're going to see in our historical narrative relatively soon, and the snake dragon becomes associated with all-conquering Asher instead. All this affects the perception of Mushushu through various historical eras. At all times, he remains a snake dragon who spits deadly poison. But while his earliest mentions see him as a demon against whom people need protecting, his later mentions see him almost as an extension of his master god, and therefore a protector of the faithful. Evil being used to defend against evil is something that Mesopotamian demonology was very comfortable with, as we can see in one of the most famous of the Mesopotamian demons in the modern world, a fellow named Pazuzu. Now, some of you may know about Pazuzu from the Exorcist horror films. Now, to be honest, I've never actually seen The Exorcist, and I didn't know about Pazuzu's appearance in those movies until I started getting deeper into all of this. I, I just don't like uh, horror movies. I'm sure they're just fine. Uh, from my preliminary research into the movie, I don't get the impression that they did a very good job of representing him. But of course, I haven't seen it, and I'm sure the movie was just fine, whether or not they got Pazuzu right or not. Anyway, Pazuzu is horrifying in appearance. He is another grotesque chimerical monster, as are many of these demon things, and the engravings and statues of him which survive are intentionally ugly things. He's part dog, part bird, sometimes with wings and a scorpion tail, and in some representation, his male genitals have a biting or a spitting snake's head on the tip. There is no question that there's a, he's a demon. Like most demons, he's described as a type of wind. But Pazuzu is a king of winds, a king of demons, capable of ripping the wings off of other demon winds with his tremendous power. It's a bit hard to ask the question, where does a god come from? 
For some, like Mushushu, we can trace a line of how human events have shaped the divine sphere fairly compellingly, or perhaps even say that we can trace how the divine realm changed based on conquests in the early realm, earthly realm. Other divinities, meanwhile, just seem to have always been in place, and just rose or fell as fates happened to rise or fall it, or they've always been tied to a certain location and did about as well as that location did. Pazuzu, however, simply seems to appear in the 7th or perhaps 8th century BCE, and in his first appearances, he's fully formed. It seems extremely likely that he had a life in the popular, illiterate traditions for a time prior to that, and only at this point became integrated into the literate or priestly traditions. But this means that his origin is shrouded in mystery. It could be that he's a priest, that he's a form of the Egyptian god Bess, with whom he shares some similarities, or it could be an evolution of the early dynastic period kings of Mari, who became deified after their death and worshipped in various forms in that region. It could also be neither of those, or partly both of those and more, no one really knows. But whatever his actual history, we don't have a theory of him originally being an evil demon, for all that he has the characteristics we might associate with evil. Pazuzu is one of the more powerful, protective demons, again, evil being used to fight against evil. We see him sometimes in formal incantations during later periods of history, but by far the most common form is Pazuzu as a protective charm or amulet, or sometimes as a tiny protective statue, indicating again his origins probably in folk religion, as there seems to have been a degree of popular demand for Pazuzu before he gets picked up by the priestly and scribal classes. One very common inscription reads, I am Pazuzu, son of Hanbi, king of the evil phantoms. I ascended the mighty mountain that quaked. The winds that I went against were headed toward the east. One by one I broke their wings. It is a triumphal inscription, indicating that the east winds, which are very often synonymous with evil demons, have already been defeated in the mountains before reaching civilized lands. It could be that this triumphal inscription was meant to sort of celebrate this occurring and through the celebration make it actually have happened in the past, thus protecting the wearer of the charm or the owner of the figurine. Or it could mean that this was a warning for any evil spirits who would be frightened away both by the ugliness of Pazuzu and by his boasts of strength. Either way, a charm like this was essentially a vaccination against all sorts of demon-induced misfortune. Sickness, of course, being the most obvious, but for the Mesopotamians, even things like failing marriages, bad business deals, or climate change could be the result of certain sorts of demons. Not always, mind you. People can just have bad luck or bad things can be the results of poor life choices. 
Or it could be the gods, you know. But if you warred against demons, then you're at least reducing the number of bad things you might need to deal with in the universe. There were other wards against evil in existence, though, and we shouldn't get the idea that using evil demons was the only or primary means of protection. One of the most popular wards in later times was Lamasu, not to be confused with Lamashtu, who we'll see in a bit here. This being began as Lama in Sumerian. The Su was added by the Akkadians to make it fit the grammar of their Semitic language, and was originally a statuette of a woman standing upright, sometimes with rigid horizontal wings. The image was intended, as far as we can tell, for general blessings and protection. In terms of its image, you can picture a modern-day angel, female, done up in Sumerian or Akkadian style with that iconography, and it seems to have fit in that same popular mold as some of these other protective spirits. We've little sense of where it fits into the wider mythic context, and likely the illiterate populace and idolaters only had a vague and inconsistent notion of what this protective spirit was, divorced from the high theology of the temples. Or, there could have been a purely oral or mystery element to Lamassu in the early days, explaining the popularity of the statues, but lack of inscriptions, but all this is mostly speculation. Anyway, we haven't really had the opportunity to discuss it in depth before, but as the Sumerian culture was adopted and replaced by a series of Semitic cultures, Akkadian, Amorite, Aramean, and soon Chaldean, each wave seems to slightly change the faith that they find in Mesopotamia, typically masculinizing it. Now, few female deities were completely replaced, but many did fade away, and a few female deities, most notably Ishtar, begins to take on masculine pronouns and function in, in a masculine way in some ritual texts, even though Ishtar herself was never completely sex-changed. Lamassu, however, was... We don't know exactly when, but by the Iron Age, the older angel woman has now completely been replaced by the far more famous chimerical Lamassu. This is the body of a bull, wings of an eagle, head of a man, usually a very bearded man, and later Lamassu becomes a protective guardian of entryways, as well as a symbol of the Assyrian Empire's power and dignity. Among modern Assyrian culture people, you can still sometimes see images of the Lamassu on their logos and flags and other merchandise or cool stuff that they make. Anyway, the art of this later Lamassu is rather remarkable. While it does appear in some relief carvings, which are far and away the most common sort of art from the ancient world that survived to this day, there's also some remarkable examples carved in a sort of half-statue, half-relief mode. It's a very high relief, meaning it's carved very far up from the flat wall that serves as the figure's foundation. But also it's on two sides of a corner. 
making it almost a full 3D sculpture if you're looking at it from the right angle. Most interestingly, when viewed from that appropriate corner, the Lamassu is usually shown with not four, but five legs. Now, when viewed from the front, the two front legs alone are all that's visible, and they stand together, like a soldier standing at attention. When viewed from the side, and being placed frequently in entryways, the viewer would have typically been walking past it, the Lamassu is portrayed with four legs striding forward, as if the creature is also in motion. While the artistic effect is very striking, the purpose is unclear, aside from just looking really cool once you notice it. Most discussions of Lamassu focus like this on the artwork, because there simply isn't much textual discussion of it, while there is a lot of pretty striking surviving art. But I bring it up because one thing I've personally noticed is that the Lamassu and the Lamashtu sometimes get confused nowadays. Not in the ancient world. They had, them, they had them pretty well squared away back then. I've seen it among tabletop role-playing game communities and fan fiction communities that dip into Mesopotamia for a bit of cultural inspiration. And this isn't criticism, mind you. It's good to dip into Mesopotamia for inspiration, and it's totally understandable to confuse two monster-like things with similar names when they're written in English. But I do know at least a few people in these communities listen to the show, so I thought it might be worth clarifying. Lamassu, the winged, human-faced bull, is a protective icon placed around palaces and city walls and similar such things. We know almost nothing of his personality, but he seems to be something like a guard dog, or just a guardian in general, and definitely not a bad guy, at least from the Mesopotamian perspective. Lamashtu, meanwhile, is something quite different. Now, it's often said that in a polytheistic context, there aren't really any evil gods. For instance, Hades, the Greek god of the underworld, he gets treated like an antagonist in Hollywood films about Greek mythology. But for the actual Greeks, he was a fearsome force to be honored, respected, and obeyed, not an antagonist to be resisted. Similarly, Ereshkigal, one of the major underworld figures for Mesopotamian religions, does appear as the antagonist against Ishtar in a major myth, but in that tale, she's the one defending her realm against the ambitious Ishtar. She's not a cackling, scheming doer of evil. Death, of course, is bad and to be avoided, but the divine masters of death are to be honored and respected. They're to be feared as kings, not hated as villains. Lamashtu, however, is a different story. When we were looking at theodicy, we talked a lot about the possibility that bad things in a person's life could come from the anger of a god, or just the capriciousness of a god, or unknown sins in a person's life, or the necessities of fate. But these are things that we talk about nowadays because they retain potential relevance for the modern Christian, Jewish, or Muslim worldview. In the ancient world, however, the main cause of bad things in a person's life 
even if there were contributing factors, was either their own wickedness or the actions of demons, or of course both mixed together. Demons like actual demons, not the protective class of spirits that we've been discussing. Demons are just evil. They appear to do evil out of a natural inclination to do evil. They don't have reasons. They don't have redeeming qualities. They just have an evil nature and a heart full of malice. Lamashtu is unquestionably one of the worst of the demons. She has her origins among the Sumerians, as a being known as Dimma, who in her earliest forms is known only as one among a list of demons, usually seven, later three, and finally just her. Only the names are known at this point, not specific personalities or attributes for her or her wicked sisters. Dimma got translated into Lamashtu, with the switch from Sumerian to Akkadian, though no explanation is known for the etymology or origin of either word. It was under the Akkadian and later Semitic cultures that Lamashtu broke out from her grouping and became a feared being in her own right. Already in the old Assyrian period, we hear that she was a daughter of An, celestial chief of all gods, who was, for some reason, kicked out of heaven to wander the earth. It's debated whether she was sent here as a punishment for her evil, or if the gods sent her down specifically as a weapon to kill for their own purposes, possibly for population control. She now has no home, but lives on the periphery of civilization, happy among mountains, deserts, swamps, or other awful wilderness areas. She does, however, come into the towns and villages of good people from time to time. Sometimes she comes in disguise, perhaps as an ugly midwife or a cruel doctor, and uses all manner of deception to sneak in among the civilized. Some, however, sometimes, however, she just arrives in force and takes what she wants. She possesses both power and cunning beyond what any person can compete with, and even the gods are sometimes confounded or overwhelmed by her. But what makes her the most evil is her primary choice of targets. Lamashtu is responsible for the death of babies, from miscarriages to stillbirths to infant deaths of all sorts. She causes childhood diseases. She causes wild animals to sneak into houses and eat infants out of cradles. She does this out of a natural hunger, but she also does it because of her innate evil. Even if she wasn't hungry, she might still eat babies. She is the spiritual manifestation of the cries of countless deprived mothers in the throes of their most brutal anguish, and her attributes came to match this level of seriousness. Artistically, she's generally human in shape, though her body might be covered in fur or scales. Her head is a lion's head. Sometimes she has two lion's heads, while her feet are bird feet. Her most distinguishing features are her hands, which usually sport extremely prominent claws, those being her primary weapon. She frequently has improbably large breasts, because 
Child murder is frequently found as a feminine spirit across multiple cultures, and she's an extremely feminine character. Beyond that, her imagery can get extremely elaborate and changes across time. In older sources, she's sometimes far more dog-like, lion-like, or bird-like. In later sources, we often see her with elements of a particular scene, in which she has two dogs by her side, a snake and a centipede in her hands, and she's riding a donkey or a pig while in a boat, with her leg tied to a tree. One imagines that there must be some sort of narrative to go along with this fairly particular image, but the details are currently unknown. But with any horrible demon, the way an ordinary person interacts with them on a regular basis is first to suffer a horrible tragedy. Children died in the ancient world. This was a fact of life, but it remained a source of pain no matter how normal it may have been. However, sometimes the child's death was even more terrible than, un than usual. Perhaps it was unexpected. Perhaps it was unusually painful. Perhaps the household had seen a pattern of child death. The divinations will show that the cause is no ordinary misfortune in this case, but a demon. And in a house of such profound mourning, the demon responsible must have been particularly vile. A professional shows up at the door, having been summoned by the family, and who will be paid well for his services. Sometimes his profession gets called priest or doctor or exorcist, but the truth is that he's all of these things and none of these things. He is a literate scribe. He is a master of the ritual texts which speak of these matters with the wisdom and authority of wise men long dead. He will follow these texts, adding or subtracting from them as per his own experience, if indeed he's ever experienced such a powerful demonic incursion before. There exists a canonical series of incantations, of which we have three main tablets, and which the professional carries in his memory. Considering the situation, he realizes that the Lamashtu has settled around the house, and will continue to cause evil until banished. So he selects what we will now call Lamashtu Incantation 7, but which they called Fierce is the Daughter of An, and begins to perform the ritual. Laying his sack on the floor within the house, he pulls out small pouches, the contents of which he pours into the mortar, announcing the origin of each. This is dust from the palace gate. This is dust from Ishtar's temple. This is dust from Ninurta's temple. Then more dust from a bar, a brewery, and a bakery. This is crushed into some mortar mixed with canal mud to form a ritual clay. From this clay he forms, as the family looks on, a writing tablet and a number of dogs. Upon the tablet he draws a sun, moon, and star, which the family can understand, but then writes the text of the incantation from memory, none of which the mourning parents know how to read. But though illiterate, these mourning parents, they know the power of writing, and as he hangs it on the bed of the deceased child, 
He begins to read. Spell. Fierce is the daughter of An, who wreaks havoc among the babies. She is fierce, of divine power, terrifying. From the highest mountains she came down with teeth like donkey's teeth, a face like the face of a mighty lion. The small of her back is speckled like a leopard. Her cheek is yellowish pale like ochre. When Asaluhi saw her, the daughter of An from heaven, he made fade away all her strength, using an ingenious spell of his own. Be gone to the mountains which you love. Take deer and eye bexes. Take all the mothers of their young. I will make for you a canvas boat. We'll let you board it. I will let you get on board with you four dogs, two white and two black. I will make you sail over the Ula River, the ocean, the wide sea. I will bind your feet to a freestanding tamarisk and a lone reed stalk. I will surround you with a magic circle of flower. You are conjured. May you be bound by the spell. I have conjured you by ordeal river, city gate, justice, and main square. I have conjured you by the Shar-ur, the powerful weapon, the attendant of the Lord of the Lands. I have conjured you. May you be bound by the spell. Do not approach the door whose bolt is justice, whose door post is on, whose gate guard is Papsukal, of whom it is known that one bind by his spell will not return. I have conjured you by the respected power of the heart and the black head, by the power of the well and the ditch, by that of the garbage pile and its dirt, by the power of the clothing of an unclean woman, by that of the road and those who travel it. Evil one, by the power of heaven be conjured, by the power of earth be conjured, by the power of the great gods be conjured, by the power of the gods of heaven and earth be conjured, by the power of heaven be conjured, by the power of earth be conjured. The professional then creates the dogs, taking the clay figures he had already crafted and painting them with gypsum and charcoal, giving them various shades of gray and white. Dog's hair is placed in their heads, and goat hair gives them a tail, and he carves their names onto the backs. Sharuh Tibishu, Usur Mushaturad Maratanu, Uru Tibishu. Anamasar Tiklalaltegi, Etitalak Epushpika, Sikiplemna, Sinra Ikalbi. These dogs are placed at the doors and windows of the house, guarding all the entryways with names which mean fast is his attack. Watch all night, fend off the daughter of An. Very swift is his attack. Don't be negligent in your watchfulness. Without hesitation, use your muzzle. Overthrow the wicked one. And the god Sin is the herdsman of the dogs. In other inscriptions, different names are recorded for these dogs, but all with similar ideas of watchfulness and aggression. Because this incantation appears to be for a household where Lamashtu is common, 
or where she's already struck multiple times, all that seems to be needed is for the demon to be cast out and prevented from returning. Other incantations include instructions to fumigate, to apply plants and ointments to patients, or to poke and prod the patient in various ways, but these are all for when an infant or expected mother is deeply ill, not for when they've already been consumed by the demon. It wasn't the plants and the fumes that were medicine, by the way, while all the rest was magic. All of this was medicine. All of this was magic. We might look at the whole rigmarole and ask what possible purpose any of this could have served, and if we step back a bit, we can say that it likely reduced stress levels and perhaps induced a sense of safety and relief among people who have been hit by one of the worst tragedies that can fall upon a family. But no one involved was doing this to make anyone feel better on a purely psychological level. As far as they were concerned, there was an unseen entity causing this, and their tools and their professional experience had told them which entity it was and which ritual was appropriate for casting it out. And while it wouldn't work all the time, experience had told the people of this civilization that it worked well enough for these practices to be studied and refined for 3,000 years, if not longer, well into the pre-literate period. My father recently had an infection. He went to a professional to learn what kind of unseen entity was causing the infection. The doctor pulled out some of his blood and placed that blood in a machine, or rather, sent it to way to be put in a machine in some other location. And that machine revealed to them the type of unseen entity causing the infection. And so the doctor wrote on a piece of paper in ritually inscrutable handwriting, and my father ingested a small rock twice a day for 21 days. The point is not that ancient people were right about their demon beliefs, but that ancient people were not stupid. They didn't fear these demons, and they didn't seek these protectors for no reason. These mid-level demons were absolutely a part of the ancient world, and if we fail to understand the demon-haunted world in which the ancients lived, we will never fully understand them as people, and will probably miss out on an important understanding of our own world and the reasons behind our own actions. But that's all I have for today. I have a few more cultural and religious topics like this that I've been meaning to get to, but haven't until now, so make sure to join us next time as we read through the 50 names of Marduk in order to better understand the place of the high gods in the ancient universe. Thank you for listening.